morning, saints of HBC. You could turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. I know that we'll get used to that. That'll be new, at least for this month. I regret uh, last week I didn't um, tell you where we were going next, and I would have liked to just to give everybody kind of a head start uh, jumping into Romans chapter 5 as opposed to beginning at Romans 1, and you could have been reading a couple chapters ahead, and I know some of you are sitting there thinking, huh, you know, he just went on that you know, little soapbox last week about preaching and starting at the beginning of a book and going all the way through the end, and here he is now, jumping in in the middle of Romans, what kind of preaching is this going to be? Well, uh, it is true, we are jumping in in the middle of a book, and there's a reason for that, uh, and, um, but I can assure you that you know, the next step in this isn't sometime in the summer I'm going to start a series preaching uh, movies you know, and, and exegeting Hollywood hits and finding spiritual redemptive themes. Uh, that was 24-year-old Adam, thankfully before the age of recording everything people said. But actually, uh, starting in Romans 5 this week kind of uh, hit me a few months back as we were, uh, I don't know where we were in Mark, but I was thinking about where to go next, and I was reading through Romans, and I guess it jumped out at me that ending Mark where we do, and the resurrection, and everything changes, uh, but asking the question, what's next? You know, when you look at the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, what's next after that? And uh, most people would say, well, hey, dummy, I think I've seen my Bible enough to know it's the book of Acts. Actually, Jesus is raised, the Spirit comes, Pentecost, and the church is born, you know, and they go to the ends of the earth. So you could, in a historical fashion, say, hey, if you finish preaching a gospel, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, go into the book of Acts and just keep the party rolling. Whereas what I was thinking more along the lines of, for us as believers today, where do we go next? If we know that Jesus is raised... What, what's next for us? What, what happens? And I was reading Romans 5 and kind of boom, just hit me. This is where we are. When you really understand the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, your Christian life picks up in Romans 5 verse 1 because the work has been accomplished. Christ has been raised, it says in Romans 4.25, raised for our justification. So what's next? And if I were to ask you what's next, like right now, and said, hey, these mics that pick up your beautiful voices, they're on. Come down. Tell us what's next. Um, most people probably wouldn't. But some that are so bold would come down and say, now we get after it. You know, what's been done for us in the gospel, he's been raised for our justification, and now it's up to us to do something. Which is true. But that doesn't seem to be where Paul goes from the point at which Jesus was raised for our justification. Uh, just getting after it and starting to really live the Christian life as in what's on us to do would be like skipping Romans 5 through 11. If you were to have come down and said, you know, it's on us now to just go and, and live it out, you would be picking up in Romans chapter 12, which is, okay, Brothers, in light of God's mercy to you, here's your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, transformed by the renewing of your mind. Test, discern what the good will of God is and go do it. And then Romans 12 through 15 is doing the will of God in all kinds of different relationships. In relationships in the church, relationships to society, uh, weaker and stronger brothers. All of it's there in Romans 12 to 15. 
But Paul, led by the Spirit, seemed to want to say something rather profound from Romans 5 through 8 about if we really understand what's been done for us in the cross and in the resurrection, we don't just want to immediately rush into, now go and do this, which is kind of how most of us learned the Christian life, didn't we? We heard the word of Christ preached, the gospel of Jesus. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You become a Christian and somebody slides a Bible your way in a devotional and it tells you go on a mission trip and gives you a plan on how to start reading your Bible and evangelizing. And it's just do, do, do right away. But see, Paul seems to think it'd be good for you to know what power you have to do what you're required, which is what starts in Romans 5. And it is an implication, uh, a result of what's been done for you at the cross. That's where Romans 5 starts. There's a therefore, in light of what's been done, here's what you need to know about what you have within you now. The life of Christ in you. The interceding Holy Spirit and also the empowering Spirit. The promise that God is now for you and not against you forever. Those are all implications of the cross and the resurrection. So that's kind of what captivated me when I was thinking ahead to finish in Mark. And then, you know, threw it up to the elders and talked to them about it. And uh, of course, you know, hanging out with Dwight Stone last week, he asked what I was going to do next. And I said, Dwight, um, going to go to Romans 5. And he goes, Adam, that's a great choice. <laughs> Romans 5 is a gold mine. And I'm like, all right, I got Dwight's approval. I'm feeling good about it. You know, I open up Charles Spurgeon and he says, Romans 5.1 deserves to be printed in letters of gold. And I'm like, boom, letters of gold from Spurgeon, a gold mine from stone. So I, I'm feeling really good about this so far. So with no further delay, let's read Romans 5. We're just going to read verses 1 and 2. We'll be here for the month of May. So because I forgot to tell you last week, uh, your study this week, you can read Romans 1, 2, 3, 4 this week to kind of catch up. And then if you want to get ahead, start reading the rest of Romans and really get our minds around the gospel of Jesus Christ explained. Mark was the gospel of Jesus Christ presented just in its bare Narrative, historical facts. But nobody was walking alongside of us in Mark, as in Paul or Peter, explaining everything. And now you have Paul going back and explaining what happened in the life and death and resurrection of Christ. So, we're just going to read verses 1 and 2 today and then go forth. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is God's word to us, his word of truth for our benefit. May it bear fruits to his glory. Well, what you saw or, and heard in those two verses are the three immediate blessings of your salvation. When you say, okay, great, Jesus died and rose again, it's where Mark 16, 8 ended. What do we get out of the deal 2,000 years later? This is what you just heard right there is what you get out of the deal. The first thing that comes into the Apostle Paul's mind as he finishes in Romans chapters 1 through 4, bringing you right up into the cross. 
Taking a look at the big plan of God, though, not just the life of Jesus, but before the life of Jesus. How bad did humanity have it? Well, going back to Romans chapter 1, it's bad. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's, that's the banner that flies over humanity in its sinfulness. God is a righteous God. He demands righteousness. Not just because he created some law outside of himself and said, you know, that's good. I'm going to create a world that's, that's righteous. Well, where's the standard for the rule? It's him himself. It's not like we have to test the word of God against God and say, well, here we have the Bible and what it requires of man. I wonder if God's like that. God is that. That's how we got this in front of us. When we understand that God has a righteous law, it's because God is righteous. When we understand God is, demands holiness and gives us laws and commands to promote holiness in us, it's because God is holy. Commands to love, it's because God is love. But the problem with humanity in Romans chapter 1 is his expectation of righteousness far exceeds our ability. And Romans 1 just starts with creation of the world from the beginning of time. All ancient religions, anybody looked around, tried to figure out a way how to make it to God. They couldn't do it. They, pagans. This is Romans 1, 18 to uh, the end of chapter 1, 30, verse 32. It's just everybody in the world can't live up to the righteous requirements of a righteous God. And they might try to do it, but fundamentally they're flawed because they don't want to glorify their creator. Verse 21, they know him, but they don't want to honor him as God, Romans 121, or give thanks to him. I mean, what's the greatest praise we can give to God? It's our lives of gratitude, it's saying thank you constantly, continually throughout our day. Thank you, God, is like one great hymn that we sing with our lives as we live our daily life. And you know what Romans 1 says? Nobody was doing it. And then there's this imaginary righteous person in Romans chapter 2 that comes in. And Paul would know what this guy's like because it was him before he got saved. It was the righteous Jew named Saul. And he imagines talking to this righteous Jew in Romans 2 who says, you know what? Oh, that's all those uh, Cretans, pagans, Gentiles out there without the law. I'm pretty good. And Paul just knows exactly who he's dealing with. So Romans chapter 2 is like, you think you can make yourself righteous by keeping God's righteous law? Really? He asks him a question in Romans 2, uh, verse 22 or 23. You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles in the world because of you Jews. So you call yourself a Jew and rely and boast in God? Say you know his will and what's excellent. You who teach others, you're not doing it, he says. Uh, while you preach against stealing, you steal. While you rail against not committing adultery, you commit adultery. You say idols are abhorrent, you rob temples. He says, whether you're under the law or outside of the law, everyone is guilty. Romans 3, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10. So you could see Paul was laying out a pretty dark night sky. There's not a star in it. No one's righteous. I know that goes against the grain of some shallow forms of evangelicalism today. It says we're all stars, right? We got it in us. We're, we're just great people. And you just got a few problems you got to kind of, you know, work out now and then. That's not what Paul describes as the backdrop. 
the darkness of the night sky of the universe. We're all sinners. We're all going against God in every way we possibly can, even those who are trying to be righteous in themselves. But the hinge point at which it turns in Romans 3.21, this righteousness of God has now been manifest or revealed apart from the law. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's the good news that finally comes in Romans 3.22. This righteousness of God that Martin Luther hated. He hated it, he said. He was a good monk. He was such a good monk that the better monks than him told him to relax in trying to be so righteous. Cut yourself some slack. And Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, before he was born again, hated the phrase, the righteousness of God. Because you know what he said about it? He even studied Romans through and through. And he said, there's this righteous standard of God through the law that I know I can't keep. And then the Bible tells me there's a righteousness in the gospel that I can't get. So he hated it. But God opened his eyes to see that the righteous live by faith, chapter 4. You don't achieve the righteousness of God by the law. You don't achieve the righteousness of God by trying to work your way to it. You'll, you'll never be able to do enough to make God happy, which is all other forms of religion. They're works-based. You could try to church them up, cover them over, repackage them. They're all works-based religions that say you got to obey in order to be acceptable. Whereas the gospel of God was, you're accepted, therefore you obey. It turns it on its head. It turns it around. That might sound like I'm just selling you a, a bill of feel-good stuff. I'm accepted, therefore I obey. How am I accepted? Because there was one who stood in your place as acceptable. And that's Jesus Christ. So the righteous live by faith, chapter 4, in Jesus Christ. And he goes and says, they always have. Even going back to Abraham, the father of righteousness, promised to all the nations, he walked and lived by faith. That's your only way in. That's your only ticket. You try to write some other's prescription to get to God, no matter how hard you try, you're going to fall short of the glory of God. So that's the gospel, both the bad news and the good news, that then brings Paul to Romans 5, 1 to say, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and that word justified by faith means you've been made right by God. He's perfectly righteous. How can you be righteous? By Jesus Christ and faith in him and him alone. And so today, we're going to look at the three wonderful blessings we get from this. The first one in verse 1, leading right up to that point with we have been justified by faith. The first blessing or benefit we receive from God is we have peace with God. Jesus provided our peace, verse 1. First in the mind of Paul, of all the wonderful and glorious truths he knew of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for him to want to encourage believers in Rome with... And the church has been there for a while. I mean, he writes this around like 57 or 58 AD. You know, he was dra dramatically converted, you know, a year to two years after the life and death of Christ, as far as we can tell, trying to date the thing. So he's been in Christ 20 years. The church was in Rome at Pentecost 
It says in, in Romans chapter one, or Acts chapter 1 that there were, there were those who were coming from Rome, Jews and, and proselytes. And so immediately upon hearing the good news preached by Peter, the, the gospel goes back to Rome and it's preached. So it's not like Paul is preaching to an unreached place. He's describing, in fact, what's amazing about this, if you go back and read in your homework, Romans 1 through 4, you won't see any talk, really, of trying to go back and rehash the narrative of Jesus' life or, the, or his death or his resurrection. It's all just packaged in this phrase, the gospel of Jesus. So that tells us something about this letter to the Romans. The gospel, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus was known for 20 years. Now Paul's explaining it. And when he's trying to help you, the believer, to get excited for what you have, he doesn't immediately pull out, you got to do all this stuff. He says, look what's been done for you. And the first thing is you've been brought into a relationship with God that's a, a relationship of peace rather than enmity. You're no longer an enemy of God. You're at peace with God. And you have that peace with God through Jesus Christ. you got to pay attention to pronouns. Sorry, not pronouns. Prepositions. <laughs> pronouns help too. But prepositions. Justified by faith. By faith. The vehicle through which, as in what do we contribute to our salvation? We don't contribute to any righteousness, all we contribute is our belief. We trust. We have been justified, past tense. Something's been done to us. We've been changed by our faith in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Because of that, we have peace with God. There's a good preposition. Notice he doesn't say we have the peace of God. That, that sometimes gets hijacked today when people want to know, I, I just want to know how to have some peace. I want to have some even spiritual but not religious people say, I just feel like I need the peace of God in my life. Like I just need something out there. But they don't know where to find it. It's not the peace of God that he's primarily interested in telling you you have as a Christian. He wants to say you are at peace with God. Meaning there is nothing that God has against you anymore because of what Jesus did for you. You have peace with him. You live in a Whatever you want to call it, in the time of Rome, the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome where their, their empire was as big as it could get and they had as much power as they could have. Here Paul is contrasting and saying, you don't need the peace of Rome, you need the peace of God. Meaning there, there's nobody waiting to just drop the sword over your life anymore. Which is the way anybody that lives in a works-based religion lives? Is God really pleased with me or is he angry with me? I mean, you could go back and do a study of comparative religions uh, from the ancient times. What you know you always find is altars. Why did they need altars? Because they had to bring an offering. Why did they need to bring offerings? Because they never knew if God was pleased. And so now that Jesus Christ has been the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins on the altar of, of, of God's acceptance, we have peace with God through, by means of Jesus Christ. You know, if you think back to even studying Mark, because it just has to, every angle the gospel has to kill anything in us that wants to smuggle some form of self-justification so just think back to Mark and ask yourself the question. 
Where am I in the story? What did I contribute to what Jesus did in salvation for me? And the answer is nothing. Your name, my name, unless you have a name by somebody who happened to be in the story. You didn't show up in the gospel of Mark for the year and a half. We picked it apart. No Mike Bell, good as he is. He wasn't in the story. No Holly Blaylock, good as she is. Go down the list, name every one of you in here. None of you are in the gospel of Mark. So remember that next time your righteousness wants to try to sneak something into the gospel. You ain't in it. Having been justified, how do you get in it? By faith. You believe the story. You put all your faith in what Jesus did for you, not what you can try to read back into. No, the gospel doesn't work that way. He did it all for you. And so through Jesus Christ, you now have peace with God. You're no longer at enmity with God. You needed somebody to stand in between. You needed a, the word would be, a mediator. Somebody that 1 Timothy 2 says could, could be in between you and God. And there's only one person, 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. Doesn't that ring true then to Mark 10.45? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. There is how you have peace with God. Not some spiritual quasi, I'm just having the peace of God in my life right now. I've just got really good vibes coming my way. That's not what he's talking about here. This is objective fact. And as somebody in recent years says, the facts don't care about your feelings. So it's not about whether you feel like you are at peace with God. You got to go to the word of God and say, do I know that I am at peace with God because I've been justified by faith through Jesus Christ? That's a fact. Peace with God. It's the only way it comes because we were not at peace. We owed him a debt that we couldn't pay. We were in debt spiritually to him for an all eternity with a holy God for our sin. And that debt that we owed was, was not merely, I know we talk in judicial terms here, a substitute, somebody that has to stand before a judge and, and plead another's case. Um, and there's the, we call it penal substitution. There's got to be language of payment to make right, that we're in debt. But it's not just the, the sin debt that has to be canceled, Colossians talks about at the cross. But there's also in our sin, a breaking of God's law, a relational element to that. You have sinned against the law, but who does that law belong to? God, and there's a relational fissure. So it's, it's a double down the debt you have. It's not just that you broke God's law, you have broken the heart of God, the love of God for you. And, and so how do you both restore some payment that you can't pay back in your sin? And also, how do you just be at peace with the God that you have stiff-armed in the face, relationally? Somebody has to stand in the place for both of that. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate it. And um, so... 
My son has never done this, so don't accuse him of it afterwards. This is a completely fictitious story, but if my boy Amos and some of his buds uh, decided to go down to Utterly Delicious, uh, well, the Cutler boys are here, so we'll say Amos and pals go down to Utterly Delicious. I know it's real risky for us parents to let them go all the way down 70, but we were thinking, you know, we're going to eat some barbecue. You guys go down there and get some ice cream. And they stroll into Utterly Delicious and... Um, they are like, I want the, you know, Amos is like, I want one scoop. And Levi says, I want two. And Caleb goes, I'm getting three. And they get all their ice cream and they start pounding it. And then they go, wait, we didn't bring any money. Now at that point, there can be a relational debt to the owner as in, they've not really broken a law. So the, the relationship, the peace with the owner would need restored. Um, you know, they didn't mean any harm. But what would make it even worse is if they're like, oh, we're busted, and they just like run for the doors and steal that ice cream. And unfortunately for them, right as they were going out the doors, the cops were there because they wanted to get ice cream on a nice Sunday afternoon. And Amos leads the charge out the door with the boys behind him, and they run right into the cops, and to make matters worse, all their ice cream goes on the cops. So they are thieves, and I don't know, uh, vagrants, maybe they get a, a charge of vagrancy for just being young punks who threw ice cream on cops. And the owners are saying, they stole, throw the book at them. I don't know what throwing the book for stealing ice cream would be. I'm sure it's really serious, so don't try it. But they would both have a relational fissure now with the cops, the owners of the store. There might be some debts to pay for the stolen ice cream. And even if they were going to charge them with some misdemeanor. So dads have to come in and be mediators and open up and say, I'll pay you 18 times the amount for the ice cream. Can you just let my kid go? What kind of dad are you letting your son come get ice cream without money? I don't know. I'm a pastor, okay? I had other things on my mind today. But that's kind of representative that when we need peace with God, there isn't just this settling of a sin debt. There's a relational fissure. There is a way in which we cannot be at peace with God in relationship. Like Adam and Eve had before sin in the garden. They could walk with God. They could live before the face of God and enjoy it. And that was lost and forever would be. But it's been restored through Jesus Christ. That debt has been paid and paid in full. What do we have with our salvation? First, we now have peace with God. Judicially paid, relationally restored. Restitution has been made infinitely on your behalf because of the perfect life of Jesus Christ. Second, Jesus has provided grace from God. Look at two. Through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And again, this is different than when we were studying Mark and its narrative, and you just got a lot of uh, conjunctions, and this happened, and this happened, and so you're just kind of, he's telling a story. What you got to do when you're studying an epistle like this from Paul is use your thinker a little bit more with all the prepositions he uses. Through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. There's a lot there. You got to break it down. So first and foremost, just like we have peace with God through Jesus, why Jesus is everything to us as Christians, because verse two starts, if we're going to experience the grace of God, it's through Jesus. Notice this is kind of a grace sandwich. 
Uh, the reason we have peace with God is because we've been justified by faith, which is an act of God's grace. So grace already happened there. Then we get peace from God. And now he's saying through Jesus, we now have an additional layer of grace underneath that peace. Through him, we've obtained, here's the additional layer of grace. We have obtained, we've been given. Notice all the language is in the passive form of verbs. We've received justification. We've received peace. You know how verb, verbs work? Adam threw the ball. That's active. Adam received the ball. The ball was thrown to Adam. It's passive. I'm the recipient. And we're just recipients in all this. Through Jesus, we've obtained. What did we obtain that got us into grace in which we stand? We obtained access to God. Well, that's an interesting thing to talk about. Have you ever thought about that? That, yeah, I've been... I've been given grace having been justified by faith, and now I have peace with God. But now I stand in a sphere of grace, a whole new world of grace, not law, not performance, but grace, unmerited favor. God accepts me just as I am. You know the song, Just As I Am? Charlotte Elliott wrote it, wrote it as a Christian. We kind of messed it up when we started using it to tell people to come down front, just as I am. It's not quite accurate because God doesn't accept us as sinners just as we are. He accepts us in Christ as he is. Charlotte Elliott wrote this beautiful hymn, Just As I Am, as a believer who struggled with her usefulness for God because she was an invalid. And she had a brother who was a pastor. And she could never help him. She felt she could never be there for him when she wanted to. And so this I don't know why I'm on this tangent, but I saw the story and it was great. But she, um, her brother's throwing this after church kind of fundraiser like we're doing today. This is, I think, 1800s maybe. I could be wrong. And she can't attend it. And it just was like the straw that broke the camel's back. And she had to stay home again. She wasn't healthy enough to go. And they were trying to raise money for his church in some endeavor. And so instead she sits at home. And what does she write? Just as I am. And a beautiful hymn. That when you read it again now and sing it again, you'll see that's not a call for some unbeliever to come forward and come to Christ. It's a believer who says, how does God see me? He sees me and loves me in a sphere of grace just as I am. You know the beautiful twist to that story, of course, in writing that and it getting distributed. She made a thousand more times money for that church than if she could have attended. That's how that story ended. He does more than we can ask or imagine. And he does it for the believer in a sphere of grace in which we stand. We didn't have access to God without faith. But by the work of Jesus Christ, through him, we've obtained access. What does that mean? That before, like Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden, and access to God in a personal relationship was shut out, shut down. You can't stand before the face of God and live. He's too holy. Don't believe me? Exodus 19 illustrates this. God wants to give the law to Israel. And we all know Exodus 20. 
But Exodus 19 shows us that you just didn't have access to God because you well-pleased wanted to come and approach him. Exodus 19 is Moses telling the people of God, I'm about to go up on this mountain and God tells you to do this. Consecrate yourselves today, Exodus 19.10, and tomorrow. Wash your garments. Be ready on the third day. For on the third day, Yahweh will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. And you need to build a perimeter, set limits for the people saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. You think God's serious about his holiness for our protection? That we just don't rush into his presence in our own unrighteousness? That's the illustration here. That's what's happening in Exodus 19. You went near Mount Sinai with all of its Trumpet blasts and thunder and lightning and thick clouds. And only Moses can go up the mountain. It was wrapped in smoke. I mean, this thing would have looked like an earthquake and a volcano all happening at the same time. And he's saying, don't get even close enough to touch a pebble. That's called no access to God. And that's how the world lives apart from Jesus Christ. You can't get to him. No matter how consecrated he was telling Israel to be. For your own good, you need to stay away. But here's the good news, what happened in Christ. Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. He wasn't just a great high priest like Moses going up the mountain and coming back down. He went right up that mountain and shot all the way to heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 4, 15. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near. Now we can draw near. We have, there's the word, access. Let's draw near to the throne of what? Works? The throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find the law. That we find grace to help in a time of need. That's what it means for you to be justified by faith through Jesus Christ. You have obtained access by faith. And now you stand in the grace of God. Just as described in Hebrews 4.16. How can you with confidence draw near to the throne of grace? It's because you know, believer, that a result of your justification is you have access by faith into grace in which you stand every single moment of your day right now and for all eternity. You'll never have to clean yourself up again. It's done. Because it's his righteousness, not yours. That's what he's provided for you, a sphere of grace. Don't you love to live in a sphere of grace relationally where you know that you are accepted by those you love most? Or do you really like that conditional stuff? You know, the relationship where if you've done what you're supposed to do and they've done what they're supposed to do, you accept each other. I mean, that's a great formula for marriage, right? That's what you should have taken your vows on. I promise from this day forward, that if you do these 68 things, I'll love you and forgive you and accept you as you are. Do you say that in your vows? You need application for your marriage today? How about an implication of this? Through Jesus, you got access by faith into grace in which you stand. How about bending that grace out to someone else? Does it need to be more specific than that? Do you live and rejoice in love, because you believe or know the gospel in a sphere of grace. It's good, isn't it? 
I mean, that's good. And whether you're on the, whatever receiving end of that right now in some friendship, uh, a, a, a coworker, you can't control what that other person's going to do, but you can say at this point, therefore, since I've been justified by faith, God granted me access to stand before him in a, in a sphere of grace, not of law. Why wouldn't I want to exist with the people I love most around me in that sphere? I mean, we didn't have to get the Romans 12 through 15 to get to some to-dos, did we? You live out of the implications of the gospel daily. So we live in a sphere of grace, and we were brought into that grace by Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And yet there's one more aspect. If maybe we can use this past, present, future. If, if our past, we can have, I know people talk, I just need to make peace with my past, bro. You just need to make peace with God. God has to forgive you in Christ and your past is taken care of. How do you exist today in relationship with God? In a sphere of grace. And now let's talk a little bit about the future. And we rejoice, our third point, in hope of the glory of God. What's our promise for our future? God has provided our, or Jesus provided our hope in God. Having been justified by faith, we rejoice or exalt, your version might say, in hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? Hmm. We rejoice or exalt in hope of the glory of God. Well, let's break it down. This isn't even a command yet. This is just a reality. If you know the goodness of God and the gospel to you, you have a hope, not just for right now, but for forever. And you rejoice in it. But what draws your heart to exalt or rejoice isn't your circumstances. It's actually beyond your circumstances. It's in hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, we, before Christ, lived for whose glory? I'll help you out with that. Ours. In fact, back to Romans 1, that's what it told us, didn't it? I read it already. Although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God. Or give thanks to him. That's called living for your own glory. You want to be the star of whatever it is you want to be the star of. And I get it. It's natural to man to do that. Just, we, we like the attention. We like the limelight. In, in whatever large or small ways. So, so that's us being glory stealers. And I didn't use that stealers because of stealers. It's truly. We try to steal the glory from God. But when we see that it's foolish and futile and passing and empty and that Christ gives us all that we don't have and we've been searching for, you know what he changes on the inside? You now start rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, not the glory of Adam. You, you want him to receive glory from your life. That's called living for his glory. And you don't have to worry about Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 3.23. Because you've been justified by his grace as a gift. Now you don't fall short of the glory of God. In fact, you're being remade daily into the image of Christ, which is glory being revealed in you. How do I know that? 2 Corinthians 3.18. You, you glory thief. Glory stealer, glory glutton, you wanted it for yourself. And God says, no, if you're going to want it for yourself, you don't get it. But when you become a Christian, when you trust in the righteousness of Christ and exist for the glory of God, now I'll give you some glory. 
But this is the kind of glory you get in Christ. Colossians, or first, 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Wow. We, we went from the, the, the just, I want to steal the glory from God. And he says, I'm not going to give it to you that way. You've got to come to me through Christ and see that he is your righteousness. He is who you live for. He is the one that gives you salvation. And now you don't even, isn't it? it it's, I know we still do it, but when we step back and think, how could I want to be so the center of the show and selfish? No. Nope. Now that you get that and you don't want glory for yourself and you look to Christ and you're amazed by him, now you're going to start to change from one degree of glory to another. That's what justification by faith gives you, believer. A heart's desire to want to be like Jesus Christ. And that's when you start becoming truly glorious to look at. And it has nothing to do with your outward appearance. It's good news for those of us aging. It has everything to do with his transformation of you from the inside. More into his likeness. More fruit of the spirit. More service to others. More love for the lost. That's being transformed from the inward person. One degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He's working this in you as you work it out. Nothing greater than living for the glory of God in all the ways we can now, but it's, there's a future hope to that because that hope of the glory of God is going to go on forever. There's, there's no end to it. He's an infinitely glorious God. So how, how long is it going to take for you well, you're a finite being. How long does it take for the finite to catch up to the infinite? He's always going to be ahead of you in the race is what I'm trying to say. I mean, just grasp that. For eternity, all of his love, all of his joy, all of his glory, all of that, you're just, you're playing from behind. But if we're there for eternity and he's an infinite God with an infinite source of glory, he has more to always give you. He's always, I would even dare to say, one step ahead. <laughs> I mean, he's perfect in all these ways. But we're going to be transformed from one glory to the next forever. So that's going to be part of the glory of heaven. It's just there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more. There's, there's in Jesus Christ, even as it says in John 1.16, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. He always can outsupply you, now and forever. These are all the wonderful blessings that we have in the good news of the gospel. As believers, if, if you're not in Christ today, um, you know, you, you may have some sense of peace that comes and goes, but where do you go when it goes? How do you get it back? What about when you don't feel grace? When you feel life is just this heavy burden of work, work, work. That means you don't know Christ as Savior. Because a true Christian, one who has been justified by faith, you have now peace with God. And you have now grace from God. And you now live for the glory of God. That's something He has to change from inside of you. That's not something you've got to seek outside of yourself. On some quest, I was on, I, I you know, like I tell you, I, I Googled, how can I have peace? 
You know what every answer was about? You. You know what the first answer usually came up on every blog or website from some so-called expert, whether armchair expert or psychologist with a bunch of degrees? You need to forgive yourself. That ain't going to give you peace. I mean, that doesn't even give peace to the person you wronged. (laughs) How shallow is that? What's the world telling you? Everybody's wrong outside of you. You're good. You're fine the way you are. Accept yourself the way you are. That's how you get peace. That's what all the websites told me. Uh, Connect to nature. Remind yourself of the good things you do. Completely absent from that list was, you need to be right with God. And that's what I'm here this morning to tell you. The good news of the gospel is available to you today. That if you trust in a righteousness outside of your own, if you see your need for a savior, because you see the sin in your life, the glory stealing that you've been living for, even if you've been doing it under a religious guise, you know, Bible belt living. And you're like, yeah, I've, I've just actually probably been doing it for myself. You know why? Because people in the church like me when I do good things. And I get, you know, applause. But you know that, are you doing that for him or are you doing that for you? You need the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes everything. It turns that thing entirely around. Instead of wanting it for yourself, you want it for him. Instead of wondering if you're at peace with God, you know you are. Because of what Jesus did for you, not what you're trying to do for him. Now I know, for some, that starts to really sound like, hey man, this is a good deal. I don't got to do anything. In fact, I may want to sin some more to get some more of that grace. You see, Paul's always ahead of us. And we'll get to Romans chapter 6 one day when he says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. So relax. But if you really preach the gospel right, you should have people thinking that. I mean, if you really tell the gospel like it is, all of Christ and none of you, people should say, is it that good? That sounds too good to be true. It is too good to be true, and it is true. That's the gospel. And you gotta, you got to know that, how, how good the sinner has it when they come with nothing to Christ but their sin and plead to be shown mercy from God because of what Christ did on the cross for you. But you got to ask. you got to seek you got to knock. That, what is that from the heart? I don't know what that looks like in your seat right now if you don't know Christ. But the Lord knows, and he could work in your heart right now and show you your sin, that you cry out to him and ask him to save you. You notice when it says we've been justified by faith, it doesn't qualify what kind of faith. Strong faith. It doesn't say that. 100% infallible, inerrant, genuine faith. I mean, we know it has to be that, but it doesn't say that. How are you, what kind of faith do you need? You need faith, belief, trust. It's not about you getting your faith out on a measuring stick. It's about you looking to Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. That's who you look to today to be saved. So quit looking at yourself, contemplating your own navel, of your spiritual existence and just look to Christ and be saved. Trust that you need him. Trust that he offers you forgiveness. Believe what's been written by the word of God.
And then for the rest of us, we live, I mean, what's better than being a Christian right now? Perfect peace, perfect grace, perfect glory, all given to you by God. What would you, what would you want besides that? What would you trade? What's more meaningful or valuable to you in your life right now than having that? Nothing. There's nothing you would trade in all the world. To give up the grace of God, to give up peace with God, to give up the glory of God for what? Nothing better than that. That's why it's so good to be a Christian. Young person. It's good to be a Christian. Look at everything you receive. Any age person in here. It's good to be in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good news this morning. As if it could get better after studying the life of Christ to then spend just some time rejoicing in the blessings of our salvation. In your son, you've made us whole. You've made us righteous. We have peace with you. We live in a sphere of grace with you. We have hope in your glory and not our own. All of these are your gifts to your children whom you love. And for any in here that don't know you that way, that your word would work through your spirit to convict them, that they would repent of their sin and look to Christ to be saved. And that's only a work we know you can do. Because we've seen you do it in our own lives. And we see this as we look around the room right now. All praise be to you. Amen.